Jamie, if right. you could help tell the good folks what got you into the trade in the first place. Okay, so I, I graduated high school in 1977, uh, and when I, you know, the back back. Back in those days, um, the kind of apprenticeship trades counselor representative from skilled trade, not skilled trades Ontario, um, from um, the Ministry of uh, Colleges, Training and Universities, um, used to come around. And it was this crusty old guy, probably kind of like I am now. I'll never forget him, by the name of Bud Crane. And uh, he came around and talked about, you know, various trades and the opportunities in the trades. And, and, and back then, you know, they had like, uh, the guidance counselor set this up in the school, and when I went into the the office, and I knew the guidance counselor office, um, they had uh, ten chairs set up, and there were four of us in the room. Uh, my buddy Ken, who also wanted to be a tech, myself, who wanted to be a tech, uh, one girl that shot, thought she wanted to be an electrician, and another guy I think wanted to be a carpenter or something like that. And there were four of us showed up out of a school of almost 1,600 students, four of us showed up interested in trades. So I thought, oh, okay, this is pretty good. Nobody's interested in this. This will be a, a good thing. So, you know, uh, I went home and I told my, my mother, um, and my mother said, absolutely not. You are not going to become a mechanic. Um, you'll never make any money. You'll always be dirty, and no one will ever respect you. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right, now what am I going to do? So she said, well, you, you could become a mechanic later, but you have to go get something else first. So I had an uncle who was a land surveyor um, for the region appeal. And I thought, you know what, that looks pretty cool. And you get to be outside and do this all the time. And really, I see those guys standing around a lot, so it can't be too hard a job. So I uh, set up to, um, and I enrolled at Humber College um, to become a land survey technician because in order to be a, uh, an Ontario land survey and all that, that's a university edu you know, education. And I thought, nah, it doesn't make sense. And I didn't really want to go to university. So anyway, I ended up going to Humber College and um, I was doing all right. I did pretty well until um, calculus came along. And uh, calculus kicked my butt. Um, I had an instructor, and it's it's just it's just not you where my head goes. a lot of goes. people's butt, including my yeah, own. Yeah, yeah, not not really where my head goes, and my head doesn't work that way. And uh, it didn't help that the teacher uh, was a really nice guy, uh, but he he was uh, not a Canadian, and he had a very very heavy accent. And I took the course uh, and failed it during the day, uh, and then I went and enrolled and took the course at night. Guess who was the teacher? was the same guy. So I failed it a second time and um but I was doing all right everywhere else and then we you know I I thought I was doing reasonably well in every in all the other courses. Anyway, bottom line is um it came in the beginning of December and I got a call into the dean's office and they sat me down and said, "You know what, Mr. Holmes, you seem to be doing okay, but you're struggling here. Um perhaps you may want to reconsider your your course choice. So I thought, you know, as much fun as I'm having here with the uh, draft beer and the college girls and everything else and uh, so on, maybe it was time to move on. But but in the in the meantime, I had um, I had um, I had bought a, a Hewlett Packard calculator. This, this may seem really weird, 
But I bought an HP calculator because it used um, uh, a system called uh, RPN, or Reverse Polish Notation. So it didn't have an equal sign on it. I don't know if you've ever used an RPN calculator. Pretty cool. Really, really wickedly cool system. Anyway, um, so I got to know the rep from Hewlett Packard because he would come to the school because he would be selling technology to the school and he also sold these calculators and so on. Anyway, bottom line is the reason I bought one is because it didn't have an equal sign. So nobody ever wanted to borrow your calculator because nobody else knew how to use it. Right. So, yeah, so it was, yeah, so every, cause everybody else was using Texas instrument at that time. Anyway, which were also good calculators. But anyway, bottom line is I got to know about HP and about the company, Hewlett Packard. Well, I thought, well, okay, so I got to find a job because my mother's not going to let me stay at home and not do anything. So, uh, fair enough. Uh, so I went home and I told her what happened and she went, yeah, I get that. I don't get calculus either. So I um, started looking for a job. And lo and behold, Hewlett Packard happened to have in Rexdale at the time, which was not far from the college, um, at the Dix, Dairy Road in Gorway, had their Canadian office was there and they had 250 fleet cars and they had just built a beautiful little three-bay shop at uh, at HP to look after their fleet of cars. So I applied and um, and I got the job. So for the first year, actually, I wasn't even an apprentice that I worked there. Um, so I started there January 2nd, 1979, and I worked there almost a year uh, just as a general laborer. They didn't sign me up as an apprentice, even though they should have, but they didn't. Uh, and they had a licensed technician who was there, who, as many of the technicians in those days, uh, was uh, uh, a well-functioning alcoholic, um, and uh, what happened? Not the is, first time in a week I've heard that. Oh yeah, yeah, well-functioning alcoholic. Now remember, this this is this is 1979. Um, so and so, uh, but I kind of picked up things pretty quickly, and I got to kind of do the get the run of the shop. And I knew I had become a trusted employee or fellow coworker, I should say, when I got my own key to the paper towel container because that's where the Mickey of rum was hidden. Okay, so he would go in, he would go in kind of every morning around 10 o'clock, light a cigar, okay, sit in the little bathroom that we had, which was very nice. It was a beautiful facility, as you can imagine. HP is not, not low rent stuff. Anyway, um, and he would sit in there, have a, a, a watered down glass of rum, smoke half a cigar, and then his buddy would come and pick him up and they'd bugger off for the rest of the day and they'd, and he'd be gone for the whole day. And I'd be in the shop as an apprentice myself, working on cars, doing brakes, tune-ups, changing tires, oil changes, like everything an apprentice completely would do. Completely unsupervised, completely uh, unsafe. You're alone with, with all of this stuff up in the air. Something might yep. fall on you. And this guy's just had a, a, a snifter of rum and a cigar and fucked right off. Yeah, yeah. And he's gone for the day with his buddy, uh, who – and then uh, – and, and his buddy was uh, the head sales guy at, at a well – known still in business um, Ford Lincoln dealership. So they would bugger off and go look at cars all day. And then he'd show up, you know, 3.30, quarter to four, enough, you know, enough time to come back and then punch out. And um, anyway, bottom line, this went on for quite a while. And I never said anything because it was great. I got to run of the place. I got to deal with all the people. You know, I was running the, the quote, the shop, um, and, you know, at, at eight, you know, 19 years old. And I thought it was pretty cool. So I didn't say anything. Why would I say anything? I was I was I was in charge of my own my own destiny exactly. at that point in time. That's the best yeah. learning experience you could possibly imagine, other than actually being taught. 
Well, yeah, well, exactly. But I mean, I'd, I'd, I had already learned everything he had to teach me. And I read a ton back in those days, you know, and and I read I would sit at lunch and look through the, you know, the, the, the Mitchell books that we had. And I would sit and read the Mitchell service information manuals because I wanted the knowledge. Right. I wanted to be able to figure that out anyway. So bottom line is it took about five, six. Eh, it took eh, it took probably about 10 months for the our boss to actually catch on to what was going on. Uh, anyway, bottom line is, needless to say, he got fired, uh, and um, I was I was okay. That was that was cool. And then they brought in an, another guy, another tech that they hired. Set. So the guy that I worked for, our boss's boss, lived in Medville. The guy who hired me, and he used to deal with a, a place uh, called Smitty's Break Stop. It was at the corner of Winston Churchill and uh, Aquitaine Boulevard, and <clears throat> he hired one of the techs there to come work at HP. So as it turned out, um, I knew this guy. I knew this guy from where I grew up in Port Credit. He lived a street over, and I actually went to school with his younger brother. So um, Rob, and, Rob and I got along like a house on fire and uh, had a great time together. And um, But then, then came a time... I'm going to pause for a second because this is about the fourth time that I'm absolutely cracking up about, about metaphors. Uh, I just got off... Um, I just got off this morning. Every Sunday, I do SDL with with a group of uh, on a, another group of automotive professionals, and some of the the metaphors that are just come out of the mouths of folks that have been around the block about twenty five times, mm-hmm. who have seen it all, been, done it all, and now have so much experience and education as to our industry, have come across so many things that generational metaphors have come down and mm-hmm. like get together like a house on fire. Where does that come from? Like, I have, I how, do you, how, how do you come up with this shit? How do you just, and it comes up in, in witty conversation and intelligent conversation with people who have so much experience. Like where, where did you learn that? You know, you know what? It's, these are old, yeah. old expressions and you know, but I will, but I will tell you one thing though. I sit on a board. I sit on the, actually, I'm, I'm the treasurer for, uh, for the, on the board of governors for Arrow. And on that board is, a, is somebody else you should really should interview and also introduce you to her, but a lady by the name of Emily Chung. And Emily's brilliant. She runs, a, she's a, uh, I don't know if she's Canadian born uh, Asian, but if, if, if she's not Canadian born, she came here very, very young, probably as a baby. <clears throat> In any case, um, Emily speaks three languages, English being one of them. Maybe she speaks for her. I don't know. However, when we're in a board meeting, I will say something much like a house on fire. And um, she'll actually say, she'll put up the, and I'll look at her. And, and Emily's in her 40s. I mean, I mean she's, she's, she's not like 12 years old. But she'll, she'll go, and I'll, and I'll look at her, and she said, can you please explain what you just said? And then I will explain she said, because in, well, in Mandarin and um, in Cantonese, of course, they don't have idioms. They, they, they don't have any sayings like this. So when I say something like that, it just completely throws her off. And she said, you say things I've never heard anybody else say. And, I, and, and it confuses me. I don't understand. Please explain. <laughs> so anyway. 
It's it's a it's a very colloquial way of speaking, I guess, and it's it's who I grew up with. Like I grew up with with, with my you know my mother, of course, a single mom, but I grew up a lot with my grandparents, and who were you know my my grandfather had a grade eight education, and my grandmother, my grandmother had a grade four education, and my other two grandparents who came from Scotland had barely any more than that. So you know they spoke in a very um lower end sort of way you know i mean i i have what i think to be a fairly decent vocabulary but when you get into some of these things it, it's just kind of it just kind of comes out of nowhere right but but the idioms like and the metaphors sometimes are significantly more powerful because not only do they adequately or more adequately adequately describe the scenario than perhaps a intellectual vocabulary will that you remember it. And, and I think there's, there's something along the lines of a statistic, and, and I use this in coaching as well. If you pair emotion with a circumstance or emotion with a, a, some form of learning, you are 80% more likely to remember it. So that's where I think the idioms and the metaphors really come into play uh, at a great, great value because you can pair that to teaching, especially if you're teaching apprentices, if you pair that with any form of learning, they're significantly more likely to learn it and remember it and use it. But when you bring it up in comic books, it's like, I remember talking to this guy, Jamie's like, you know, I'm thinking about what would it be like to recall this very conversation 10 years from now? Like, I was talking to Jamie, you know, he was, you know, uh, he owner of Mass Britannicus and he brought this great metaphor. I was like, it's like we got together like a house on fire and. And that's the kind of things I hope that people maybe one of the things that people take yeah, away from this. Yeah. Those things are so impactful. Yeah, like like my well, my grandmother she used to say it. My Scottish grandmother used to say it differently. Uh, she would say it. Yeah, we got we got on along. We got on like a house of fire. You know, so and, and then you say that quite like that. You kind of go. You know, of course, I still hear her saying it with her accent, but I mean, but I can't. You know, I can't quite uh, can't quite mimic it. Well, I can, but it's you know. Hi, <laughs> hi, son. Oh, hi, son. We got on like a house of fire. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, have you ever seen Mrs. Brown's Boys? Have you ever seen that television? Yes, yeah. sir. Yeah, that was my grandmother. Except instead of being Irish, she was Scottish. Uh, okay. That, okay. that was her. The last thing Literally. I remember watching from Mrs. Brown's Boys was, is when uh, um, she had just shunned away some Jehovah's Witness off the front door, and they were and she comes and says, "Ah, they're talking about Noah, and they're talking about the rain, and they're talking about forty days and forty nights of rain, and in, in Ireland we just call that the summer." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Some some of that stuff in there is that that would that would be my grandma. That would have been exactly her and and the same attitude as well you know yeah anyway yeah anyway and so it sounds a lot more appropriate when there's more drinking involved oh yeah yeah oh yeah without a doubt without a doubt but um so so rob and i got along well and um but it i was always working on brand new cars so the oldest car that hp had is was three years old because they turned the fleet over so quickly actually h uh, hewlett packard and coca-cola had they were always fighting for the largest fleet of um, independently owned cars because they owned the cars. They didn't lease them. They bought them outright, and then they would sell them back to General Motors, Ford, or Chrysler um, at the end. Anyway, um, so being that I was only working on new cars, I wasn't, and only three brands, I wasn't getting a 
a ton of experience, right? I knew them inside out. So Rob said to me, he said, hey, um, one of the guys uh, is going to school, another apprentice, the same level as me, is going to school. Um, at the guy, One of the guys who works at Smitty's is going to school for two months. Um, he said, you know, to help them out and to probably give you some more experience, let me see if we can arrange a two-month leave of absence for you from here. Go there, get some more experience on other brands and makes, and fill in for him while he's at school. And, um, you know, go there for a couple months just to widen, broaden your horizons. And I thought, okay, sure, we, we, we can do that. Um, that seemed like a really good opportunity to me. So, of course, I went, packed up my tools, and, and went over to Smitty's and uh, did my two months there and uh, never left. I stayed there. I loved HP, and, uh, you know, HP had, was a great company back then. They had benefits. They had all kinds of stuff. But I was definitely limited there, without a doubt. So, anyway, bottom line is it. Uh, I ended up staying at Smitty's, and because I had – I'd been working since I was 13. I started working when I was 13 years old. I started scooping ice cream at Laura Secords uh, at Sherway Gardens when I was 13. They weren't supposed to hire me, but I kept bugging them and bugging them, so they finally hired me, so I'd leave them alone. Um, and then I went from... Persistent wins. No, Persistence yeah, wins. Yeah, every single day. Uh, so I, anyway, I left Laura Secord, and I went to Radio Shack. And I learned how I was taught by a guy, um, uh, Vic Adams, great man. Very, very great man. Um, taught me how to deal with people and how to explain. And I hate to use the, the expression how to sell, but how to sell a product, how to talk about the features and benefits, talk about what was in it for the customer. So I worked for Radio Shack uh, right up until I started my apprenticeship. I worked through there all, there, all through college, and I ended up um, being his um, part-time manager. So anyway, how that helped me is when I went to Metabell, I knew how to talk to people, um, which was better than the other three techs in the shop who you probably didn't want talking to people. Um, and uh, they made me be assistant manager. So I would be there at you know 7.30 in the morning, get the shop up and running and whatever the case is, eager to go. And um, I ran the shop till about 9.30 or, or in the morning uh, when, the, when my main boss would show up. Um, he would come in mess everything up, then around 11 o'clock, he'd bugger off. <laughs> so we were kind of back to the same thing as HP, but I was kind of running the shop for them. And then once I got the customers looked after, I would, you know, drag a car into my bay, which was right beside the office. And, you know, you don't, you haven't, you've never met me, but I'm not a big guy. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty short. I'm only, you know, five, four, you know, at that point in time, I was five, four, and I probably weighed 110 pounds soaking wet. So I was not made for you know, back in those days, hauling around tires, you know, bashing kingpins and, and ball joints and all that other kind of stuff and anything heavy just wasn't for me. But I've also been an amateur radio operator and since I was 15. So I have an electronics background, right? So I've been into electronics since I was a kid. So they always, so, so they gave me uh, tune-ups, the electrical stuff, air conditioning, and the, the more technical stuff because it was a flat rate shop and that was back in the you know early 80s when you know you would you would hammer a, a complete front end into, into a Malibu two or three times a day you know there was mm -hmm. lots of mechanical work back then and there was good money in it and the guys in the shop were fast at it 
they didn't want to deal with the drivability problem. They didn't want to deal with why the turn signals weren't working or, or, or none of them want, had wanted nothing to do with air conditioning. But I ate that, <laughs> I, I ate that stuff up. I love that kind of stuff, right? So for me, it was, it was, I got to deal with the people. I looked after the business and I got to do the kind of stuff that I like to do. It was, it was a, it was just a perfect marriage. It really was. In any event, um, at that time, uh, another franchise had started up by the name of Autogenics. And Autogenics was going to change the world, uh, you know, reinvent, reinvent what the automotive repair industry is. How many times have I heard that in the past 45 years? About six. How many of them have made it? Zero. In any event. This one was run by a guy, I won't give use his name, but a bit of a megalomaniac. Anyway, we almost made the mistake of, uh, of, of amalgamating with them. But what happened was that Smitty's Brake Stop, the two guys that I worked for were, one was 10 years older than me, one was 20 years older than me. And they came to me and said, hey, we're going to buy the Smitty's chain. Um, are you interested in, in doing something with us? I said, yeah, sure, for sure. Anyway, bottom line is... Um, the main guy that they made the deal with uh, on his way to work uh, one day on the Don Valley Parkway, dump truck flips over, kills him. And uh, yeah, yeah, really, really sad, really, really good guy driving this convertible Cadillac, dump truck flips over, crushes him, the car, everything. And we're left to, and my future business partners were then left to deal with the other business partner whose name I shall not use. Anyway, uh -huh. bottom line is, um, uh, they went in, they had the check was 50 grand. I remember the number thinking, Oh my God, I can't imagine the amount of money, $50,000. Anyway, they walked in, they had the check $50,000 and they went into the office to make the deal. And the other business partner, there was another guy sitting in the office with him. And the, the guy who was selling the business turns to Andrew, my older business partner and says, Andrew, I'd like you to meet so-and-so. He's the man who's just bought Smitty's break stuff. And Andrew went, what are you talking about? We had a deal. He said, yeah, but he gave me $5,000 more. So, yeah. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, well, that's what this, that's what this guy was like. And it's a very well-known Canadian franchise still in business, but that guy's long since gone. So, you can't, he, he didn't rep, yeah, he, he, he ran it along. Anyway, never mind. It's, it is what it is. So, so Andrew was so pissed as you can imagine he would be as I would have been as I was so Andrew came back and and he said um what are you doing he said we're having dinner we're gonna come with us we're gonna have dinner at Wally's house tonight so Wally lived in Meadowville so I told my my then girlfriend but my wife uh, now I said hey listen I'm just gonna go to Wally's place and we're gonna go over this thing and try and figure out strategy anyway so we said they said hey are you interested in maybe you know what this this Smitty's only ever got to six stores. We think this other guy's a lunatic. Uh, you know, we had we had done, we're going to do some other stuff with him or whatever the case. Anyway, I've kind of got timeline a little bit mixed up. But anyway, bottom line is, um, he said, no, we're going to do our own thing. So um, we had talked about it, went back and forth. And anyways, as it had turned out, they had been working on what they were going to turn Smitty's into. And they came to me, and I, at that point in time, um, I had... I had my license not that long. I think I was 25. 
at the time, just about to turn 26. My wife and I, we, we, we had been living together for a long time. We weren't even married. Uh, and uh, they came to me and said, um, let's open the first store. We want, you, we want you to open the first store. Okay, so we had a location. I didn't like that location. I found my own location. And um, along with my uh, toolbox, my 64 Chevelle Supersport convertible, um, and uh, some connections with that my wife had because she worked at the bank, uh, and she gave us a little bit of cash. Um, for, we borrowed, I borrowed $15,000, and we opened the first mass mechanic store. And, um, you know, as you can imagine, you know, 25-year-old. What year but, was that? Um, what year was that? Well, we started in 1985, but we didn't open until what, April 86? May of 86. May of 86, that's right. Right at the end of April, May of 86. We so May of 86 with a so toolbox, a Chevelle, and $15,000 from the bank. Now, i got to figure out. I'll do some a back end here, but fifteen thousand dollars in nineteen eighty six was a lot of money. It was it was a decent chunk of coin, and and thirteen thousand of that went to buy the existing excuse the expression shithole shop that we ended up buying. Like you know, as as I said, I paid thirteen thousand dollars. I think it was thirteen thousand dollars for the business and the equipment, and I and and we paid twelve thousand nine hundred ninety eight dollars too much. <laughs> I mean, hey, this is a learning experience for many. This is a, including oh, yeah, you at yeah. the time. But this is a learning experience oh, for oh, many. Learning, learning experience, I'll tell you. So, this shop was one of the, it was an old get was a converted. It was a it was an old Shell gas station, but it was seven bays. It was a big shop. It had pumps out the front with Ultramar, uh, which we didn't want, but we didn't know that at the time. And Ultramar helped pay part of the rent, and they paid the electrical bill and something else. So, it was it was a bit of a, a leg up. But the place was an absolute dump. Just, oh, it was awful. Um, in any event, it was one of these shops where you had to kind of walk sideways beside the cars because between the bays, um, there was so much junk piled up. I, I swear to you, there was, there was junk piled up in two, two to three feet in places. Uh, friends of mine helped me clear it out. And they took, I think, uh, 28 Pickup, my, they took my pickup truck, 28 pickup truck loads of scrap to the dump to empty this place out. Seven bay shop. Yeah. There was a little body shop. Yeah. Yeah. There was a little body shop rented. They had put a dividing wall and divided one bay off in the back. And, and anyway, it was really, really old, old, old school stuff. Uh, the floor hadn't been washed in years. I thought, I, I thought actually at one point in time it was a dirt floor because the grease and the grime had been ground so much into the concrete. That, that it looked like a dirt floor. Anyway, we spent, I don't know how many days, you know, scraping, 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 washing, scraping, washing, you know, pouring sulfuric acid on the floor to get the, etch the concrete to get the oil out. And even then, even 10 years after that, on a hot, humid day in July, the floor would sweat and it would turn into a skating rink. And we would have to acid wash it again and then clean. Now, luckily, we had a three-stage interceptor, so it was actually, it was okay. It was all right. Everything got caught in the interceptor. But, um, and, and we washed that floor every single day. Like we had, uh, we used to have, you know, initially we had gas, uh, one of the gas kids. Their job would be to pump gas in the evening and then clean the shop. Uh, but the shop got cleaned every single day. Uh, and um, in any event, <clears throat> Uh, That's a great point for a metaphor. You, it doesn't matter if you drop the egg and it smashes, you might be able to put it back together again, but it's cracked. Oh, oh absolutely, 
absolutely without doubt. But you see, the other thing too is that even though the place was old, we tried to keep it clean. We didn't weren't always successful because we figured, you know, even old can be okay as long as it was clean. And we were kind of the quote the neighborhood shop. Our biggest competition was the Sunoco station next door, uh, and he'd been there a, a really long time. And at first, we didn't really get along, but after a while, we got along. And we were actually in the same building as a Midas Muffler. We had the building kind of, there was us, there was our shop, there was Triman's Transmission, and then there was Midas Muffler. You know, and Midas kept telling us, oh, you know, you, you guys don't even really see that that much anymore, right? Like, no, uh, that many no. shops that close together that could successfully function almost almost as a unit, but you were you were vying for competition over a period of time and, and then not so much. And now, yeah. just uh, just conceptually, I don't know, I don't know enough about rural uh, states to know whether it's similar in the states, but I know growing up rural Canada, there wasn't much of that. Like it would be no. a gas station with a shop in it. And that's basically mm-hmm. how my grandfather, my great grandfather opened Sheffer Sales and Service. Yeah. And uh, if I recall, I'm going to get the date wrong, but I think they opened the shop in 33. And mm-hmm. my grandfather was born in 38. So they had a Plymouth store. Um, I don't know when they got the Plymouth franchise, but they were a Plymouth store for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. I still have the original um, the original placard sign uh, out in the shop, out in my shop, that was originally oh, cool. hung inside the store, Sheffer Sales and Service, in white. It was green on white. And that's that's why most of my my content materials now are going out in that same kind of green and white. It was to pay homage, but um, they were just a just, and I say just, but they were a dealership with a like three bay shop and a convenience store and a gas station all in mm-hmm. kind of one. You don't yep. see much of that anymore. You drive around, especially you drive around rural Canada, you're going to see a lot of closed down shops that used to be that where, you know, the pumps have been taken, but you see the standard in the middle where the pumps would have yep. been. You see the, the corner store window where the corner store, you know, the junk food and stuff would be, yep. you know, the pop and the chips would be out front. And then you see the big bay door or bay doors to the left of yep. it or to the right of it. You see a lot of that in rural Canada and it's boarded up and abandoned. And to think that's, that's where you were, you, where you were in 1986 and, and you made a go of it stands testament well, to a lot of your business acumen. Well, 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 fortunately, we were in, in the west end of Mississauga, which was very undeveloped at the time. Um, like, I mean, Aaron Mills was, we were kind of in the, in the kind of going towards the western edge of Aaron Mills. There was nothing west of Winston Churchill, nothing north of, you know, a little bit of north of Dundas, but not a lot. I mean, we were kind of on, uh, by then it was somewhat settled. It was certainly settled um, from, a, um, uh, from a residential standpoint. For sure, but all the stuff that's out there now. The other thing too, though, that we had going for us is we were near the um, uh, we were near the auto mall, the Aaron Mills Auto Mall, which was kind of mm-hmm. the first of that concept in Canada. You know, where they had all the dealers all together in one place. That was a that was a first there. But as far as the Midas goes, um, everybody says, "Well, aren't they competition?" Well, in the beginning, no, they weren't, because exhaust was still such a huge part. They weren't even doing brakes back then. Because there was so much money wow. in exhaust, okay? Like you could get a, they would buy, because yeah. they, they made a lot of their own stuff. They had a company that made their own stuff. So you could get a, a yeah. Y-pipe for Chevy Caprice, uh, and their cost on that pipe was two seventy-five, $2.75. Wow. And they'd sell that pipe, you know, for 65 bucks plus, pardon me, plus labor to install it. 
So, you know, they'd be out the door for a client be out the door for a hundred bucks if it didn't need studs. Okay. And then, um, so their profit margins were just huge. That's why they made so much money. And then Chrysler came out, I think it was, I forgot what your, I want to say 88 or 89. The first stainless steel exhaust arrived Mm -hmm. and, and they near had a seizure (laughs) because they realized (laughs) business was done. Right. So that's uh-huh. when they got into brakes and doing mechanical work, because up until they they didn't have they didn't have even have a certified technician in the building. They didn't need it under under the exemption under which the, you know they and Mr. Lube and so on operate. Um, you don't need to be a, have, a, have a somebody with CQ. So anyway, and just to clarify, started. folks, anybody that's listening from the states, CFQ is our short form here in Canada for Certificate of Qualification, meaning that you are a licensed apprentice or a licensed technician. Yeah, you, certified apprentice. Once you go, you get your CFQ because you've passed your education, you've done the schooling, you've done the training, you've put in your hours, you've signed your book, and then you've written the exam, and we call it the C. The exam, it's sorry, technicians here in Canada will say a multitude of things for CFQ. CFQ, getting your CFQ means you've written the test and you've passed the test and you become a licensed technician. Yeah, certified technician, absolutely. So, yeah. So, anyway, back then they didn't even have to have that, which also helped them because they could pay less. You know, they had, quote, installers is what they call them. Anyway, mm-hmm. so, so that's what we get. So, we opened the first shop and then, um, you know, we started, they started poking around and I, and I helped in the, a lot in the background. Um, I wasn't actually a partner at that point in time in head office right away. Um, they were business partners of, our, of ours, and we had an agreement. Anyway, bottom line is um, we struggled a lot in the beginning. We were not wildly successful. We barely scraped by. Um, we probably almost went bankrupt a multitude of times. But it was a matter of it was a matter of finding our way and figuring out what to do and how to do it and that, that took a while um you know head office at that point was you know wally and andrew <laughs> the two guys that i had worked with you know we 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 um you know we applied a lot of you know a lot of their stuff but we struggled a lot in the beginning we struggled a lot you know mostly as a as a as a, as a kid who didn't really who didn't know any better and sometimes the problem at that point in time is that Money still had emotion attached to it because I grew up mm-hmm. with, with very little. Um, and I, I was empathetic toward the client, perhaps a little too much to my own detriment at times. And um, I won't say we, we gave a lot away, but we did. And I struggled. The first guy that worked with me was that guy, Ken, who I'd been in the apprenticeship um, uh, apprenticeship uh, session with back in high school and he too was a functioning alcoholic at the time and I didn't know that and um, we struggled a lot in the very beginning trying to kind of find our way and, and figure it out and, and a lot of people do but I was able to take a lot of those lessons moving ahead and apply them so in any event um, moving ahead at one point in time uh, uh, Wally <clears throat> decided that he'd had enough so Andrew bought him out, brought in another business partner, uh, Jane, who was an accountant as well. Andrew was an accountant, and uh, Wally was a tech. In any event, um, we kind of muddled through and figured it out and figured it out. And at one point in time, we opened another shop. We opened a second master mechanic. 
So we had two of them. And after uh, we owned the second shop, um, how long we owned that shop? Ten months? Yeah. Sorry, I'm talking to my wife. She's sitting over here on the couch. We owned that shop for about ten yeah, months. As, as I regularly say, I use my, my, my wife's brain for my memory because yes. she is going to remember it. I am not. Yeah, without a doubt. Absolutely. So we owned that shop for about ten months. And um, uh, Andrew, at that point in time, pardon me, uh, Andrew, uh, his wife was, well, they, they were, she, he was Hungarian, or he is Hungarian, and she was um, German. Anyway, they had a bed and breakfast in France, uh, in the Provence, uh, that she would run. Uh, and he would, he would want to take 10, 12 weeks holidays a year. Fine. Well, he should. He was, he'd, he'd made it, and he's, he's got a great story, too. Andrew's story is very, very cool. In any event, um, so he came to me. And he said, hey, he said, um, why don't you sell your shop? Why don't you sell um, the second store, Matheson store? Why don't you sell that store and take over, come and take over as the general manager of the franchise? Um, because truthfully, he had tried it with other people, a couple of other people, and it failed miserably. Um, a, because um, they were not from the franchise. They didn't know the people. Um, their, I won't say their personalities were abrasive, but they were. Um, and we were, we were, as I used to refer to us, we were a very tightly knit dysfunctional family of <laughs> franchises because it was run like a family business. We ran it like a family business, right? Um, anyway, at, at the end of the day, he said, you know what, why don't you come? He said, because I, I had all, I one of the things that I had was first right of refusal to buy Master Mechanic if and when either Andrew and or Wally retired or whoever was the last one. I had first right of refusal because I was first mm -hmm. in the door and we'd work together. And truthfully, at the end of the day, I was probably their best bet on A, making it work and mm. and bringing it all together. So so he said, so he said, but I'm going to take 14 weeks holidays. Hmm. This sounds an awful lot like Hewlett Packard. Okay. <laughs> so you've been on this road before. Yeah, we we played this game. So I said, okay, no problem. So he, we kind of went. We're moving along, moving along, and everything was fine. And so we did this for about a year and a half, about eighteen months, and everything was okay, and it went well, and the franchisees were as happy as they were going to be, uh, which was uh, happiness is a sometimes thing in the franchise business. So uh, uh, I, was, I've heard that very much. Yeah, yes, very much, but. In, you know, in the meantime, we'd opened some new stores and we'd got people up and running. And I applied a lot of the lessons that I had learned opening my own business and not making money and making mistakes and trying to tell people don't do what I did. Um, and uh, this is how you avoid doing what I did. Anyway, bottom line was it came down to uh, just about two years. Andrew came to me and said, OK, he said, it's your turn to shine. I want to sell. Um, this is how much money I want. You can't do it on your own. Uh, he said, I'm just telling you straight out. You may think you can do it on your own. You can't. You need to find a business partner. And here you go. I would like to have this done within the next year. Okay. And Andrew was the same. It was, as a matter of fact, is the age that I am right now when he came and said that to me. So I said, okay. All right. Sounds good. So I went around and hat in hand and Tried to sell the master mechanic concept to a couple of banks. 
and to um, to a couple of people that I knew who were in the business, a couple of people I knew who weren't in the business, and I tried to be able to, you know, drag the money and bring get the money together, and um, everybody was afraid. They were all afraid of it. I I don't know why. You know, it's funny. I one of the guys uh, very successful. It sounds like the, the same thing. You know, your mother said, no, absolutely not. You can't be a mechanic. You got to go do something else first. I think that same mentality is there, right? Oh, that, could, same, could very well be. that same fear that you're not going to make any money and you're not going to be successful and you're not going to make well, any you, money as a mechanic or a bit mechanic business owner, right? That same mentality, right? Well, that's right. And, and I mean, it wasn't a small amount of money. I mean, it was a couple million bucks we were talking about, right? It was, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, at that point in time. And it's interesting um, one of the guys whom I knew, who's a friend of mine, actually, who's still in business. As a matter of fact, I still do business with this shop. I still do occasional diag and programming work for his shop. Owns a, a small multi-location business in, and, uh, in Mississauga, Milton Oakville. And I went to him and I, I said to him, hey, do you want to be my business partner in this? And I was at his shop not three weeks ago. And this is 20 years later right now and we were chit-chatting outside before I, I left he said you know what he said when you came to me and asked me if to be your partner or master mechanic he said I was afraid I was really afraid and he was a successful guy um, and really you know <clears throat> but he said I was afraid he said but looking now he said it's the biggest mistake I ever made I said well yeah, but you made the right decision at the time. That's what really matters. You know, we have you can only make the, you can only make decisions based on the information you have in front of you and your gut, right? Yep. That you you yep. have to use use the your best judgment based on the circumstances and the data and the facts. You can and so why I say so frequently, you have to do your own due diligence. Mm -hmm. And we Every we time. I apply this to so many different things. Like when when mechanics ask me you know, why did you do this? Or how did you do this? Or, you know, how do I, how do I get this promotion or how do I get more money or whatever? You have to do your own due diligence based on yeah. your own research and your gut. And you have to make the best decisions based on, on that. And if you don't do your due diligence and you just, you know, wing it, it's not going to be successful. You know, might get lucky, you know, one times out of a thousand, but well, unless you do that, that basic stuff, yeah, uh, yeah. it's not going to, no, you're absolutely right. Um, actually, Scott and Manna, I was at a, a training session. My Mark, Mark LeMay and I know each other, known each other for years. We go, have gone to stuff together. And Mark, Scott and Manna said probably one of the best things that I've ever heard about, quote, winging it. And it, it's, and it, it applies the same thing to diagnostics. And he said, even a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? So, but, but if you got your eyes open, you're probably going to gather more. In any event, um, so my wife, uh, when our, our, uh, when our son was born, our first son was born, well, second son was born, joined a, um, uh, a mother's group and uh, new, a group for new moms. And, uh, you know, she got to know a lot of the ladies and it became very social. And we ended up, one of the, um, one of the ladies had, uh, she had a party at her house. And I met her husband, who was also a quote. He's an he's accountant, but he was also a, a car guy, real car guy. Well, not a real car guy. He's a British car guy, but he's but still a car guy. Um, anyway, oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so he and I once again kind of got along, and you know, he was an accountant, and I was a mechanic, and you know, we had 
we had lots of stuff to talk about. So we got along and they had a couple of parties and we got to know each other a little bit more, a little bit more. And anyway, a second child eventually came along and um, uh, I met Hugh, the, the two, the two our, their youngest and our youngest went to the same nursery school. And um, so the two dads, he had uh, had left his job. He'd been working for GE. He was the the the, the CFO for for GE in Canada in Toronto, mm-hmm. and he hated the job. He hated working for GE because he'd always worked for smaller leasing companies um, that had been constantly eaten by the next largest company and moved up, moved up, moved up until it was GE. And he loved all the small companies, but he hated the little company or the big company. Couldn't stand it. So anyway, they packaged him out, and he'd actually been been off work for a, almost eight, nine months at that point in time. Anyway, so we go off in this time of year, October, and we find ourselves trapped on a school bus with a bunch of, you know, three and four year olds on our way picking pumpkins. So he says, he said, Hey, are you still That's in the franchise? Hell for somebody. You, I, I'm oh, just no, thinking we, of thinking myself, you, you have a bus full of three and four year olds that have little to no attention span that are constantly wanting snacks are constantly asking, are we there yet? I'm bored. What are we doing? I don't want to do that. Didn't want to put their boots and hats and coats and, and mitts on in the middle of October to go pick pumpkins. And until they realize what they're actually doing, are you actually going to be have fun? And oh, yeah. you're going to basically like, why can I start drinking now? Can I can I yeah. start drinking yeah. now, please? Yeah. Yeah. About that. But, but the bus was full of parents. So it was it was it was marginally better than that. But but no. In any event, so Hugh, Hugh and I, of course, sat sat, you know, two seats because we knew each other. And uh, he said, Hey, he said, uh, you know, I left GE and um, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about opening a little franchise. He said, are you still in the franchise business? I said, Oh yeah. He said, well, you read the franchise contract for me and give me an opinion. Yeah, sure. No problem. I read lots of contracts. No problem. So I said, what are you thinking of, of opening? And he told me, well, I think I'm going to get into the paint, paintless uh, dent repair business. I said, oh, yeah, it's just, probably a good little business. I said, um, what kind of income do you need? And he, he said, oh, about you know, X. And I said, well, from what I understand about those franchises, and I said, and my knowledge is limited, um, you're going to need a couple of them to make that kind of money. Um, I said, but, uh, I said, hey, I'm, I'm working on a deal and I need an accountant for my deal. So why don't you come and have a look at the deal that I'm trying to put together? So he did, and it was downhill ever since. No, I'm, I'm kidding you. No, it was, it, it was, no, you know what? And uh, we worked. It was hard. It took about 16 months to put the deal together uh, because two accountants negotiating was tough, really tough. My my previous business partner. So for anybody that's listening right now, you you gotta you gotta check out the YouTube channel to see the reaction right now because I think every one of us had the same kind of reaction. Two accountants negotiating. <laughs> okay. Well, my my you're probably want to edit. You're gonna probably want to edit this part out. But my previous business partner Andrew, who himself an accountant, would say, and we had run into this a few times when when dealing with franchisees. He said. More absolutely viable, good business deals are fucked up by lawyers and accountants. I, I do not, by any stretch of the imagination, disagree with you at all. Because yeah. my father, who is a 
accountant who is a sort of a CMA CPA and was for his entire life, including when he bought his book of business and turned into a wealth management advisor, said exactly the same thing. So many business deals were completely squashed by people that were either too afraid, so they weren't willing to take the risk because they were accountants. They were they were instead of looking at the big picture, not just looking at the numbers. Yeah. Like they yeah. they weren't taking into account how viable the leader was or how viable the long-term ramifications of the product was. And yeah. all they were looking at was just the numbers. That's right. That's right. And the, and the lawyers were simply looking at the legal language, right? And, and they, they, and they couldn't, they couldn't get their heads past it. In any event, it took about 16 months, uh, but after, after a lot of back and forth and back and forth, we were finally able to consummate the deal, made it happen. And, um, and, and Hugh and I were business partners for 14 years. Um, nice. The beautiful thing about our partnership was that we needed each other. I couldn't do his job. He couldn't do my job. He looked after the business. He looked after the numbers. And he, he would deal with most of the landlords, you know, leases and that kind of thing. And I did everything else. I looked after the day-to-day operation of the stores. Um, and... Um, you know, we opened, we closed seven stores. Um, we closed seven. We opened nine. We moved some stores. And we took what I referred to initially and what we bought was a, a loose collection of shops and actually turned it into a franchise business because we turned it around and did what what I, um, the part that I like to do the most, which was apply systems. You know, we, we, we had stuff that we did consistently and it was in a consistent application of process. And that's, and that's, if I can give somebody a piece of advice about running a business, number one, make sure that you have a monthly financial statement. Financial statements are not for the tax department. They're for you to manage your business. You need a, a monthly financial statement. I was, I was so lucky because my wife was my bookkeeper. Okay. Um, and, and she kept me on the straight and narrow um, but you need a bookkeeper. You need to have a financial statement by about the 10th of the month following. And people say, well, why? Why by the 10th? Why not kind of the end of the month? I said, because if something go, has gone sideways, if something is really off with your numbers, the chances of you remembering two months later, not going to happen. But if it's within eight or 10 days, you're going to go say, oh, yeah, we, our parts GPs weren't quite right there because of this. Learn what the ratio should be. Take a management course. My life turned around, or our, our life changed when I actually took the second management course. A guy by the name of Kelly Bennett out of the West. That was through a company Horizon Training. I don't think they even exist anymore. But Kelly Bennett really opened my eyes to what I was doing wrong and how I needed to change. Um, and, and how I needed to do things differently. <clears throat> and then once I realized how much emotion was attached to the prices that I was giving and realized that that was so wrong, you know, that I was not making enough money simply because I didn't push the right number on the keyboard, <laughs> really, is, is how I came down to it. That really comes – like we regularly – hear it in automotive, especially in dealerships, when we talk about advisors selling, 
and you know I'm going to talk about a little bit in a newsletter that's going to go out um, this week, where uh, advisors selling from their own wallet is one of the biggest detriments to any yep. service department. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have so much care and empathy for the client, they forget that they're in, they're they're effectively running their own little business in the service drive, right? I understand that you know putting a $1,700 quote in front of uh, a family of four is something you really don't want to do and that your first gut reaction is to try and make their life easier. I understand that. I have empathy for that. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. very happy that from a leadership standpoint that you as an individual care about your customers so much that that's your first gut reaction is to trying to do everything you can for them. But guess what? You have a business. You have, you're in a business. You have a job to do. These are the fundamentals of this business. In order for us as a business to function properly, these are the things we need to charge, and this is how we need to charge. Now, are there alternatives to try and make their life easy? Absolutely. Are there alternatives to how you pitch and how you present and how everything is executed? Absolutely. But it's not your job fundamentally to immediately knee-jerk to give a discount or immediately to give something away. Do your due diligence, like I said before. You know, we need to run this business a certain way. And, and as I regularly say, if you're not selling the way it's presented, yeah, you're going to end up with a, not a result you like at the end of the month. And that, you know, checking your results after 10 days in the month. I know people who are checking them daily, tracking yep, them so daily. Yeah. Because it, it's a lot easier to make a course correction on 1% than it is on 10. 100%. Absolutely. And you know what? And, and you can't make it up. All up on the next job. You're not going to. It doesn't work no. that way. But but the best thing you can do in a, with a $1,700 quote is to prioritize. Is to prioritize, right? That's I always I always whenever I was speaking to a client, um, it was most important first, and then as I went through the quote, it would always it would be the stuff that was less important, or things that we could perhaps delay until next visit. Right. I mean, <clears throat> one of my one of the, the lines that I developed and I and I, I taught this to so many people is I would say, hey, Josh, how you doing? Hey, listen, just want to you know, let you know we've we've uh, we've done an inspection. You know, we've had we've inspected your car. Uh, we've diagnosed what you brought it in for and for your own continued safety and reliability. We we just as we always do, gave it the once over. It's actually in pretty good shape. However, there are a few things that need some attention, and this is what they are, in order of declining importance, right? Mm-hmm. And I always, I broke everything down individually. Prices always include tax. It was always the bottom line price. I never said, well, that'll be 138.50 plus tax. No, it'll be 162.50 tax in, right? Because people always mm-hmm. remember the first price that they hear. So I always gave uh, that, those two pieces of advice there for any advisors listening and for any uh, mechanics who want to get into either getting into the service drive or are running your own shop and are regularly quoting those two things there in order of declining importance. That's a great phrase and it's a great way to start uh, making sure that you're itemizing your quotes when you're presenting. It's a great phrase to put that into place because I remember the first first couple of quotes that I made the first time I went to the desk, I would literally just ramble off what was presented. Like I'm thinking like a technician, right? 
you know, the first line of the work orders had check breaks, the second line was oil change, the third line was customer concern of, of you know, rattle in the front end, whatever. So I would respond based on what I had written on on the um, the report as a technician, and I was doing the same thing on the desk. I was simply rambling off after doing the quote for each repair, whatever it was, rambling off what that said. It's like, and, and once you realize, and it took me a long time to realize, and I, I got kind of taught that, but not especially when I started to realize that you prioritize the required work, the safety work, then the required work, then the recommended work, the declining uh, level of importance. You show the client that you're talking to that you're prioritizing their safety first and their importance and their well-being and their family's well-being first. And then you're saying, hey, the stuff at the bottom that's not as important, that's the stuff that's going to technically help you. It absolutely is. You know, Doing a transmission service is absolutely going to help you. But those are the things that I'm recommending because – and then they're going to go, can we put that off until next week or can we put that off until next service? And it's like, absolutely. These are the consequences of putting it off. But absolutely, we can put it off to the next service or whatever the case may be. But they know those first three things on that, that I'm telling them now because it was top importance first. They need to be done, and it wasn't, it wasn't an issue. And the second thing there is including tax. For, for states in the U.S. that have tax and here in Canada where everything is taxed, making people try to calculate what the number is at the end is never a good idea. Because you're right. They think about the first number they think of, and then either they forget there's tax extra – or they're, mm-hmm. instead of thinking about what you're talking about, they're trying to figure out what the tax on top of it is. Exactly. You've, you've distracted them. You've totally distracted them. See, what, what, I, what I used to tell when I was teaching how to write estimates and so on, it would be safety first, something that needs to be repaired now so it doesn't cause further damage. Then you moved, as you said, moved down the list. Mm-hmm. Right. Those were, those were always the top. But I always would say but to – because you want them to feel good about their car, you know, because we all know, you know, I would get, you know, had odd tech work for me. He said, oh, this thing's a piece of junk. They shouldn't be fixing this. I said, well, hang on, hang on. This may be A, their pride and joy. Maybe they know it's a piece of junk, but it's all they can afford. This is what they need to rely to get to work, buy groceries, get their kids where they need to go. The last thing they need to hear from us is is deriding their vehicle okay mm-hmm. unless the thing is ready to fold in half um unless it absolutely is really 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 not you know we need you can have that discussion with the customer but that's that's a, a conversation you don't have over the phone that's a conversation that you say to the client you know what steve when you come in tonight can you can you give us a couple extra minutes? We're going to put it up in the air for you, and we're going to show you what our spots of concern are and why we're concerned about it. And we're concerned about it because of you and your family's safety. But we just want to be able to show you. We don't want to tell you. We want to show you, right? And but but I always started it off with, we've given the car the once over, and actually it's in pretty good shape. That already gives the customer a. Right. Yeah. The, that that sense of, of relief that that it, the stress it, comes down. Yeah, that's right. Now they know there's stuff that needs to be done because they brought it to you. Right. They they didn't bring mm-hmm. it to you just because they like you. <laughs> right. They'd rather not have as to be much as they like you. Like as much as the guest <clears throat> is going to like you and and trust you, they really don't like you because the only reason that they're there is because they have to be, and they know they're not walking away without spending money. 
So they really well, well, don't want to like no. you. It's, no, 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 they, they don't. Uh, you know, pe- people would say, um, you know, I'd say, all right, we'll see you next time. They say, well, hopefully it's not too soon. And I said, no offense. I say the same thing to my dentist. That uh-huh. was my standard response, right? I, may, I get it. You know, like, like we're all on the same page here, right? Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. You know, we, we're, all, we're all, we're we're in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat, right? Correct. <laughs> so, in any event, um, anyway. so so I, we went on to uh, to do that, and uh, we did we ran Mass Organic for 14 a bit years, and then my business partner, his health wasn't quite as good as mine, so and and he was and he he's a little more stressed than me, so we ended up um, selling to a Canadian company, Walkaway, uh, to a Canadian investment company who continues to run the business and they continue to do well, and. Um, I stayed home for a little bit, but then I, I went out and um, after a while, I started a mobile diagnostic and programming business and I do that and uh, module, I'm getting into a lot of module repairs and a lot of weird stuff and back to back to the basics as a 15 year old working on a workbench with a microscope and you know fooling with software and, and chips and doing repairs and that kind of stuff again and you know I, I figure I can I can do this for a while. You know, uh-huh. uh, once again, I'm back to working with just me. Um, but, you know, I do I do miss the master mechanic days. I do miss some of the socializing. Uh, but it's what I, I'm getting a bunch of that now as I'm going out into shops and as I'm getting to know people better. And, um, you know, people are getting to know me and getting to know the stuff that I can do. And I'm getting calls from people I've never heard from and saying, hey, I got your number from so-and-so or such-and-such. They said that you might be able to help me with this. Okay. You know, I, I actually get a, a referrals from a lot of the um, local um, uh, recyclers, auto recyclers, okay. because I've gone to visit them uh, because I can rejuvenate and, and provide a lot of what I refer to as uh, side door solutions to modules that are one time use and, um, and that kind of thing. Anyway, this is pretty cool. But you know what? It's a great business. It really is. Um, and it has a lot of future. Our, our, our son is a tech. He works at a at a GM dealer in Milton, and um, you know he's making he's making what I consider to be starting to become decent money. I think he's almost thirty eight mm-hmm. bucks an hour, um, and that's that's only going to continue to go up. Um, for those people who decide they want to open their own business, um, a couple of things. Number one, look at your market. Do the research in your marketplace. Have a look and make sure you're comfortable. With the vehicles, drive around the neighborhoods. Drive around the neighborhoods where, where you think you're going to open. Where there's real opportunity today, though, for um, for people who are far younger than I, who are you know have a have a C of Q, um, there are a lot of there are a lot of business owners my age who are looking to retire, who have no plan. They 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 don't have a way out. You would be far better to go and try and make a business buyout deal with a shop that's already up and already running. And there are lots of them out there. And there are a lot of quality shops out there who the business owner wants to retire and they have no way out. So if if anybody who's looking to open a business right now, as opposed to starting from, from nothing, you would be better almost to do that. And there are lots of opportunity out there. I'm, I'm telling you, probably for the next 10 years, 8 to 10 years, this is going to be, because there's going to be guys my age, like 63, 64 years old, who mm-hmm. 
don't know what they're going to do. Their kids don't want it. They're not interested. They're not technicians. They're not in the business. They have no interest. And and, it, and it's not like away. the SaaS industry where you're looking at six x multiples, right? It's you're not looking at you know you're not looking at going public with a business like a SaaS company. No. Is. You're not looking um, at EBITDA numbers and like all of that. It's not that yeah. complicated. Most, to try you know, and find the financials to figure out the value of a business. Yeah, but so, like you said, doing your due diligence is is a vital yeah. vital piece. With what you're right, you're absolutely correct, and that's and that's the the good thing and bad thing about small business is the EBITDA the EBITDA multiplication to arrive at a final number doesn't really matter. Well, well, sorry, you say it doesn't really it does matter, but it's less important. Um, it's mm-hmm. less of a, a factor. Just and then small business just does that, but. Um, you're probably looking at EBITDA numbers if it's a good shot between two and a half and three, three times EBITDA, mm-hmm. um, depending upon the age of the equipment, quality of the equipment, and, 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 right? Mm-hmm. So uh, client base and all that kind of stuff. But if you get a, if you get a shop that's doing a million bucks a year, um, they should be putting, even after paying us the service advisors and, and so on, they should be putting between, if they're running it properly, between 200 and 250 grand a year to the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Right there, assuming they're getting their parts GPs and, and they're managing their labor, uh, mm-hmm. meaning meaning their their labor um, <coughs> um, return is is what it should be. Um, so, and, and is it possible? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We heck, we, we had a couple of master mechanic shops that were fighting, vying for the top spot at you know between 2.2 and two and a half million dollars a year out of five seven base. Can it be done? Absolutely, nice. can be done. Are they hammering it? Absolutely, every single day. But it's doable, and those people mm-hmm. are making money. I guarantee you. However, um, you don't have to do that. You know, you could you could do three quarters or or a million. A million dollars is not hard to do these days. Um, and you can make some decent. Just coin to kind of break it. that down for somebody who's who's thinking a million seems like a lot of money. It it really is. It's eighty three thousand dollars a month. Right, a million dollars okay. a year is eighty-three thousand dollars a month. That's parts okay. and labor. Okay, so so look at it this way: um, CAA and any number of other organizations will tell you, or or used to be the number um, that Canadians spend between seven hundred and fifty and twelve hundred and fifty dollars a year on their car. So average it out at a grand. Okay, mm-hmm. and a thousand bucks a year they spend on their car. A thousand times a thousand is a million bucks. You mm-hmm. need a thousand customers. Mm-hmm. Thousand customers, but you need those thousand customers to trust you, like you enough to spend their thousand dollars with you, right? You have to do what's required to get them coming back, and that's what those stores that are doing two point two, two point five million dollars a year are doing. Okay, they're not the only game in town. They're not the only choice that clients have in their area, but they have done things, and they have client retention programs and a number of other stuff. You know, that Master Mechanic worked with and developed along with them for their marketplace to get those thousand customers to continually come back. We have one shop in Toronto um, that probably pays about $800 a month in parking tickets for their clients because they don't have enough room on their lot for all their cars. And if they have to park them out on the street and if they get a parking ticket, they pay it for the customer. The customer doesn't care. Nice. And those are all things that go into, you know, your business plan, your monthly structures, 
uh, how you do business, your customer experience, because let's not let's not throw that to the wind either. You know, the dealership world, you know, we focus a lot on the customer experience or, or at least good leaders are focusing on customer experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. A small five, seven bay independent shop or master mechanic franchise shop, they're going to be focused on just as much as, as much of that customer experience as possible. Because at the end of the day, if you want to do two, two and a half million dollars in a year, you know, you need 2,000 to 2,500 clients in a year mm-hmm. to do that consistently. Consistent. And you're not going to get that many people in your door every single day, every single month, all year if you're not making sure they're taken care of from every aspect. you got to do things like when you open a shop, if, if you're not going to buy one existing, absolutely as in a five-bay shop, you have to be looking at your demographics. What's, what's the average age of the vehicle in the area that you're opening? Is it you know a three year old or less leased vehicle because you're they're not coming to you? If is it a is it a five to seven year old vehicle? They're more likely to come to you, but you're going to be looking for that sweet spot seven to ten. You want to see you know a very large portion of the population around the shop that you're opening in that area. You want to do the demographics of the people that are in that area. You want to do market research. What businesses are around? You want? Do you want to be close to restaurants? Do you want to be close to commercial properties? Do you want to be like these are all things that you need to take into account before you open a shop and continue uh, running the that's right, shop. That's right. Well, you need you need an absolute mixture because um, the other thing too is is, is you all need to consider. Is in when you're opening a business or you're looking to open a business. Now, the, the problem is right now, most opportunities uh, in any built up areas is going to have to, you're going to have to buy a shop. Okay. You're going to have mm-hmm. to buy because to try and break into a market, there's, there's no places to go. There's no, there's no, the commercial properties, the zoning's not there. There's any number of reasons that you can. So you're going to end up opening a shop. However, what you need to be about careful about buying a shop is you've got to look at the age of the clientele um, mm-hmm. because areas uh, turn over. Okay. When I say turnover, they turn over age-wise. If you have, um, like when we first opened Aaron Mills, lots of young families, lots of stuff going on there. Everything was great for the first 15 years. But then once the kids grew up, went to university, moved out, moved away. Of course, that's a little harder these days. Um, and as the clientele aged and started retiring, all of a sudden they're not driving. And then mm-hmm. there was a period of time where business kind of mm, did the nosedive because it, the area was full of retired people who haven't downsized, who haven't uh, turned over. And we, we hadn't had the influx yet of new families, of young families again. Right. So that's also a consideration. And that's where having a good uh, commercial base comes in. Now, depending mm-hmm. upon how it works out, you know, sometimes, you know, we had we had sometimes three generations of, of, of a single family bringing us their vehicles. Right. You know, we would have that's, that's you know, the gravy right there. Earning enough trust to have the entire family come in yes. and then have their family come in and have their mm-hmm. camp family come in. Getting that's three right. generations into one small shop, even yeah. if it's at a dealership, but having built enough trust so that's that's a thing and you brought up something really cool there and, and just want to make sure that there's, there's an alternative you, you made uh, mention that those who grow up grow old perhaps they're not driving anymore the alternative is perhaps they are affluent enough uh, they become affluent enough that now they're buying something brand new and they're no longer driving the 10 year old vehicles oh, yeah. as we know the dealership world we are heavily pushing either service contracts or 
um, built in, you know, oil change and rotations in the first three years. So now what that, you know, Mr. Smith, who used to service his his 10 year old Camry with you, is now going back to the, the Toyota store with his brand new Camry because they gave him all kinds of free stuff. And no matter how much he loves you as a shop owner, as a shop, as a technician on that shop floor, he's going back to Toyota because it's free. Right. Yeah. At least yeah. for three years. Mm-hmm. Is he going to keep is he gonna keep that car after three years? Probably not, because what I'm finding around here, I'm finding my grandmother's talking about getting rid of her her now old Santa Fe and leasing a vehicle because she's unsure of her life because she is feeling very mortal in the in now in 80. My grandfather did the same thing. His last vehicle he leased because he didn't want to deal with the outcome of having uh, the financial burden of a finance. He wanted to be able to return the vehicle or wanted my father to be able to return the vehicle if necessary. There were all kinds of implications that I've heard probably a dozen folks that are becoming elderly going into leases with free maintenance built in. That is a consequence in an area that once was a young family area and is now becoming an, a, a more older, more affluent area. Yeah. Well, that's right, and 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 that's right. it's the it's definitely turning over. You see, the other thing too is is to have um, a mixture of uh, retail and commercial fleet, not commercial fleet, but even even just a, you know uh, the electrician truck. I mean, you know, we we had customers, you know, guys, p- people who were painters, electricians, plumbers. Um, you know, we had other tradespeople's vehicles and things like that that we looked after. Um, and a number of master mechanic stores, we had, um, you know, we had uh, uh, fleet contracts with Duffin Construction. Uh, we had several other companies, uh, CNCP, uh, Conrail, uh, uh, PD Rail Services, uh, or PNR, I should say, Rail Services. They um, they are great additions to have in it along with your retail business, simply because the commercial continues to supply. No matter what the economy is like, um, mm-hmm. the stuff still has to get fixed. So, I mean, the the absolute rock bottom we hit was around 1990 uh, during that recession. And mm-hmm. I remember going out to get, you know, pick up the the one or the second car. There were only two of us in the shop, seven bay shop. We were down to two of us, and going out to get that car. And it was out on Dundas Street in Mississauga. And out in front of our um, shop was a bus stop. And the bus had stopped. And I heard knock, knocking on a window. And I looked up and it was yeah. one of my customers riding the bus. And I knew he had two cars. And I went, we're done. It's over. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, here, here's, here's a guy. I know their family has two cars and he's riding the bus. So that was a okay. Now what's going to happen? That's a suck in the air through the teeth moment right there. Oh yeah, it was absolutely it was. But you know what? What were we going to do? We had no other choice. I didn't know how to do anything else. I wasn't going to go go get a job. You know, at that point in time, the business was absolutely in the toilet. Everybody's was. But uh, as as does everything, including with the way things are going today, things do turn around. You know, and they've done this. Like like I've been through three recessions in this since I gotten have gotten into this trade, and as I always say to people, and they would say when business was was really bad, they'd say, "Well, how how bad is it?" I said, "Well, I'm still ten pounds overweight, so it can't be too bad." <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
But uh, yeah, you can't give up hope. But but to those who are thinking about going out and doing your own thing, do your homework, do your research. But what you really need to do, and this is what you need to do before you do anything, is you need to go into the bathroom. You need to look above the sink. And you got to really, really say, can I do this? Can I, am I able to do this? It's not, it's, it's not that it's hard to push a different key on the keyboard. What's hard is wrestling with your own mind to be able to push that other key. It's, it's, it's to be able to handle the emotional hurt, if you will, because it's going to happen mm-hmm. when somebody says something to you where maybe you didn't quite meet their expectations and it hurts your feelings. You got to be able to wrestle with that emotional stuff too. And you got to be able to wrap your head around it and you got to be able to either make it right or shake it off. And if you can't do that or you're not willing to do that or you don't want to do that and you can't deal with confrontation because it's going to happen. And if you can't deal with that, then I suggest you keep working for somebody else because you will be very, very unhappy running your own business. Well, I, I, you know, we've had franchisees that despite our best efforts, I've had to go to them, had to go to them and say, you know what? We both made a mistake. You thought you could do it. I thought you could do it, but you can't. You know, we, I watched a couple of guys take, you know, 250,000 bucks that they invested and completely squander it and give it away. You know, there was one guy, I remember that um, he said, well, I don't know where the money went. And I said, well, let's go on the roof of the shop. I said, well, go stand on the roof of the shop and we'll turn 365 degrees and I'll point and I'll show you where your money went. You gave it all away. You didn't run the business as you were supposed to. You didn't have the monthly financial statements. You didn't review your stuff. And you did. It sounds like your piece of advice right here is, um, A, uh, have the confidence. To, if you if you don't, sorry. Let me try to say this succinctly. You need to have the confidence to be able to do it. Not not arrogance, confidence to be able to do it. And two, you have to hold yourself accountable to what you're doing. If you can't hold yourself accountable to what you're doing, you aren't going to be successful because like you mentioned, you had this individual asked the questions like, I don't know where the money went. Well, that means that you weren't holding yourself accountable looking at the financial statements every day. Are we following processes and systems that have been laid out that have been successful for many, which means that if it's been successful for many before you, it should be successful for you. And if you are waiting six months, a year, 18 months before asking the question, what isn't working, you're already uh, 16, 18 months too late because you should have been looking at after day 10. That's a great piece of advice. Great piece of advice. Yeah. <laughs>
I believe uh, somebody once told me, um, you know, in flat rate, you don't have time to do everything. But at the end of the day, you always have time to do the right thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Dropping the mic at the end of the. I think I think that's a that's a great place to end off, Jamie. I really appreciate the time, the energy. There is so much in there for so many people to gather intel from, um, from metaphors to business acumen to to your story in the business, understanding what you've come through, the struggles from 1979 all the way to 2023, the the 44 years. Uh, I really appreciate the time, the energy, and the effort, sir.